Welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. A fun episode for you guys today. We have Amir from RS Future so coming who, on the podcast. Who is Amir? Okay, so first of all, we don't have enough like JDM import stuff on the podcast. And it's because I don't know a lot, right. I'm super interested. I like, agree. I'm super, I need knowledge. I just want to, I want to sponge and, it up. And what have we learned? A, a lot. So Amir is <laughs> a, he's a time attack legend. He's the owner of RS Future, which is a motorsport focused shop. They do a lot of aero motorsport type stuff. Time attack yes. is what they're all about. Time attack. And Amir is a legend in that world. And I met him. I was over at uh, Stanceworks Garage, hanging out, talking with Mike, having a few beers. And Amir showed up because they're working on the aero. You know, the aerodynamic stuff that they're going to be putting on the Ferrari. I got gotcha. uh, RS Future is doing the aero for Mike Burrow's Ferrari 308 K-Series. I uh, think so. I started talking to him, and he's got a, he's got an NSX that's fully tricked out. I mean, it's like K-Series <laughs> Is that the technical swap. term? Tricked out? Yeah. It, <laughs> what, what would you say? A fully built, time attack built. Built, kitted out, decked out, whatever you want to say. Tricked out, whatever you want to say. Tricked out sounds like you're like a salesman from 1940. Yes. Well, this here vacuum cleaner is all tricked out. You don't want to date her. She's a little tricked out. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so we were talking about it, looking at, you know, talking about his NSX, talking about RS Future and what they're doing. And I'm like, yeah, you know what, man? We just, we got to come on the podcast. We want, I want to talk a little bit more. So I sent a message to, to Mike t- today uh, to ask about Amir. And he said, uh, this very nice thing about him. He says, Amir will help. And I think that this really speaks to um, Amir okay. as, as a competitor. Uh, Amir will help everyone at the track, even his competition. He's the kind of guy who wants literally everyone driving at their peak, even if it is someone who stands to beat him when it matters most. Otherwise, the competition isn't as good as it could be. And I think that's a tenet that says a lot about the guy. I like that. I like that a lot. You you want to bring your competition up. So that, so when, that it's your true competition. Yeah, you don't want to like get into the boxing ring with a guy with a broken wrist, right? You don't want to be like, oh, this is my opportunity it's to beat. It's the opposite of sandbagging someone. You're, yes. you're like, oh, no, no, no. Let me let me take that sand off of you right. so you can be faster. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but before we get into our interview with Amir, what have you got yeah, for let's us? Take a minute to talk about Petrol Box, which is a monthly service made specifically for the automotive enthusiasts like you and I. Each month, they select items including tools, detailing supplies, apparel, garage gear, stickers, publications, all the latest and greatest in the industry, and send it right there to your doorstep. There's two different levels that you can choose from. You can get the Petrobox Basic. That costs less than 20 bucks a month. And then you have the Petrobox Premium level, which gets you even more gear for $39.95 a month. Check them out at mypetrolbox.com. And while you're there, be sure to use the code OVERCREST at checkout. That'll get you $6 off your first order. With Christmas coming... This is actually this is a good. great gift. It's a Christmas gift that's awesome. You don't have to go out to Target and, you know, wade through seas of masses on empty shelves because of inflation and, and, <laughs> and all this other crap that's going on. Just sign up for Petrobox. Give it to your dad. Give it to your brother. And it's the gift that keeps coming month yep. after month. You got a whole it's year awesome. of it. it. It is fantastic. All right. So before we get to Amir, I want to just throw this out to everyone. If there's someone you would like to see on the podcast, a guest you would like us to have, mm-hmm. or if you would like to come on the podcast, you think you're a pretty cool dude, hit us up. We'd love to hear your ideas. What are your criteria for a cool dude? Um, you have to be cooler than Jake. Was, <laughs> so we're not going to ever interview p- anyone ever again, <laughs> is what Just you're saying. Send, p- send pictures of your shoes. And then, we'll, <laughs> then, we'll, then we'll know. I have amazing shoes on. What are you wearing? These are fry boots. Okay, so winter Jake turns cool and he wears cowboy boots with heels to make them seem just just a little. They're not big heels, but a boot needs to have some sort of a heel. Yeah, I I suppose that's true. I suppose that's true. All right, let's get into our interview with Amir. Yo, how's it going, man? Hey, Amir, it's Chris and Jake from the Overcrest Podcast. How are you doing? Good, how are you? I'm doing great, man. Good to hear from you guys. Yeah, what are you, what are you up to right now? You're at the engine builder. What are you what's what's being built? What's going on? I'm always curious. Someone says they're at the engine builder. Something serious is going down. Oh, we definitely blew up an engine at Long Beach in a catastrophic form. Um, Ooh. And we have uh, Global Time Attack Finals, which is in about I think we're supposed to load in in about seven days, and uh, we had to get an engine together in time for that between the two events, and also figure out why our first one failed, uh, which is like. Basically, I don't know, I've been driving a really, really long time, like 15 years, and it's my first engine failure ever, and naturally, it happened at Long Beach. So uh, we really want to see why it happened, 
and then uh, get one together and we're making some pretty big changes to our car and naturally trying to do like too much worth of work in about three weeks. Define catastrophic failure. I'm always wondering, like, is that a rod through the block or did you lift the head or what happened? So we, uh, the engine probably had about a total of 19 laps on it, which we do push these engines pretty hard. Uh, and then on our outlap, um, on the streets of Long Beach, we managed to throw a rod out of the side of it and put like three holes in the block. Oh, so yeah, three, we, uh, three separate holes in the block. Yeah. From, and you ruined the track like for everybody else. Rod. Luckily we didn't <laughs> We got very lucky and managed to pull off and hide away behind, uh, some tire barriers. I think it was a little sketchy for probably uh, the first lap after, but it seems like, uh, after that, everyone still went out and did some pretty good time. So luckily, that, that was the big thing was we didn't get a lot of time at Long Beach. So I don't want to uh, ruin the track for everyone and got very fortunate that despite the issue we had, everyone still got to continue with their session. All right. So I want to talk about time attack and I want to talk about your car and all that stuff. But I want to kind of figure out a little bit of behind the scenes, what's going on with Amir. How did you get here, basically? How did you get to be the time attack guy that's, from what I hear, very, very fast? Yeah, so my first time attack event was in 2013 with Redline Time Attack. Uh, I had an E36 M3 that I'd put together specifically for that and their enthusiast class. And why, why uh, though? Why did you build this car? I mean, what was the impetus of like I need to go do this? Was there something that you saw oh, or experienced, or, or why did yeah, you go absolutely. build the car in the first place? So uh, there are plenty of forms of motorsport and I am a huge fan of many of them, but uh, I guess you could say in my developmental kind of time with cars, I was a huge fan of the Japanese uh, motorsport community and looking at cars that you could say like attainable, you know, when you're thinking about when you look at a GT three car or a prototype car, like those are basically spaceships and crazy amounts of money that you will, you know, you don't really consider to be possible. Right. And in Japan, all of the time attack cars were essentially cars that you or I could go buy, but they looked insane. They had massive aero. They were making huge power. And every time you'd watch, uh, you know, like a hot version or best motoring video, you would see these crazy cars and they looked like something that you could build. And when I was, you know, like 15, 16 years old, I was seeing these cars come out of Japan, like the Cyber Evo or the all of the HKS cars. They had uh, this full carbon IS and uh, their Evo that was pretty crazy and kind of every car you could imagine that tuners would like there was a wild version in Japan of these time attack cars and seeing that really really inspired me to one day build something pretty crazy so and, was this uh, like an exclusively Japanese type thing that's going on at the time was there anything in America because I know your time attack stuff you're doing here is, is definitely growing in popularity here but at the time was that a Japanese JDM thing so in the beginning, it was a very Japanese and JDM thing. They've been doing it for a long, long time. Uh, and it started as uh, something where basically a tuner shop in the 90s would put a few of their parts on the car and they just wanted to showcase it and they'd all go out and compete. And it started as you know something you would see at a typical track day and started to get a little bit crazier. And uh, there were a couple of guys like Nads from Hoonigan now. Uh, at the time, I believe he was with Super Street or Import Tuner. Uh, he saw this and was very inspired by it, brought it back uh, to the U.S., I think, early 2000s, and they started what was Super Lab Battle here. And so that this was is basically the, a, uh, a time in the automotive world where there were still, like, hidden hidden corners of the uh, the enthusiast market. There was things that nobody exactly. had ever seen before. Now it's everything's everywhere. Like, it's, there's a hashtag for everything. <laughs> you know, there's a hashtag for your camber socks. There's hashtags for everything. But back then... You know, this, like, even you, initial uh, D. You and I, we would have been like, time attack? What is that? Yeah, or like, you Why know, is you, there only one car out there? I remember discovering initial D and going, is this real? This is something people do? And it's just like there was these things that you could discover and glom onto and, and be impressed by. Was Is that kind of, did that, is that what happened for you? Yeah, definitely. And, and it's funny you mentioned that because I feel like back then it was also kind of cool to get into something that no one else really knew about or that was your thing and you and your friends really, really enjoyed it. And the time attack was very, it was, it was very much like that, especially when those guys went and found it, because uh, I think they were at Tokyo Auto Salon and just happened upon a time attack event, if I remember correctly. And they were like, whoa, this is crazy. These cars are absolutely nuts. We need to have this in the U.S. You know, and that's how they stumbled upon it. And uh, and for me, it was much the same. You know, once I found out about it, it was kind of uh, a very obscure form of motorsport that, uh, you know, you had to be pretty 
nerdy to be into because you're out doing one lap by yourself and the cars require so much that you're so focused on the car. It's almost more about the car than the driving. It seems almost like uh, hill climbs, but flat. Yes. Right? I mean, because exactly. you build these cars, <laughs> hill like hill climb cars no are wall. just like, they are oh, yeah, 10 tenths, 100. The car is turned up to 11. They, it, it's probably going to get us. It's built specifically for that thing. Right. And it runs once or twice, maybe three times, and then that's it. That's all it really needs and to do. And then there's Obviously, holes in the block. <laughs> well, you, you drive your NSX around. I've seen it on the street and stuff like that, so that's not necessarily the case. But I just feel like it's there's kind of this relationship there. Yeah, and I, for someone that might see or know that form of motorsport and not know Time Attack, that's actually exactly what I would refer it to, being like the cars are built almost no rules. Uh, it's kind of run what you brung. They encourage crazy extreme aero and crazy high power levels. It's essentially, like you said, it's a hill climb, but flat, and you're going around in circles instead of up a mountain. And there's nothing, there's a lot less to hit. Right, and so they're based, the sectioning body is just do whatever you want. Right. I mean, there's is there some classes that are kind of okay in this class you can do this and this class is open or how do these how does this what are the classes? Okay, so there are essentially in North America, there are four classes uh, with global time attack. You have enthusiast, which is um, probably the most entry level of time attack you can get. Um, You have to run on a 220 treadwear street tire. They're fairly narrow, but in typical time attack form, they don't limit power or weight reduction or anything like that. So you can literally have a car that is on the same street tire that you would buy any car on, and it has a 1,000 horsepower. And we have <laughs> seen cars like that before, but it's like, so the car goes nowhere because it just spins tires from corner to corner. and uh, With a smile the whole way. <laughs> exactly. And uh, normally the cars don't get to that level because if you're going to invest that much into the, you know, into the package, you go with one of the different classes. Um, so the class that I'm in is the next one up and that's street class. And, uh, essentially the concept is it's on a street tire. So we run on the Yokohama AO 52, which is a 200 treadwear tire you can buy and run. Lots of people run them on Caymans and whatnot. Very common tire for those kinds of cars. And it's a tire you can drive every day, but they are incredibly grippy. You know, they're only a couple seconds off of a Hoosier A7. So they have a lot of grip. And our rules are still fairly open. Uh, Like my street class car is probably more extreme than most cars you would find at almost any club race. Like their highest level of car, uh, my power to weight ratio is probably at about the same. Uh, Just we run it on a street tire. And I would say like our aerodynamics are probably a little bit more advanced than what they would run. And that's street class. That's what I'm in. And I like that class because the cars do still look a little bit like what you would see on the road. They're a lot more relatable to kind of the era of time attack that I got into more of the early 2000s. And then we still have to have an H pattern. Like I run an H pattern dog box. So it's a full race transmission just with the you know traditional H pattern. And my car probably makes about 500 at the wheels and weighs around 2350. So- All right. So before we get into your car, I want to talk about your NSX. I really do. But I want to hear about this okay. E36 M3. Well, no, he, he only described two classes so far. I know. I we know. got two more to go. <laughs> well, we only have an hour. We can't talk about the classes all night. <laughs> Tell me about your experience and with Time Attack and maybe a little bit about building that car and if you got the reward you were looking for when you finally got it out on track. Yeah, absolutely. So the E36, I'm, I'd been a huge fan of European cars and a uh, big fan of BMW, and I wanted to build an M3, and the E36 was the car that I really liked because when I was young, that was the car to have. And decided to start with that platform, put uh, not a crazy amount of money into it. It was a, you know, entry level and just wanted to see if I could be competitive. And the car did so well that I believe we podiumed at every event we went to. We had an undefeated season, won at Global Time Attack Finals, which is kind of like the one big thing you want to win. And uh, it opened a lot of doors for me with a lot of the partners that I have now. So uh, really successful with that program. I love the car. I still have it to today. It sits untouched but uh, still have it hopefully revive it one day and accomplish everything i wanted to with that car you should take that car out again now at the same track that you raced first and see how much you've improved over all these years i think that would be awesome that's not a bad idea uh, i like the sound of that see where uh, <laughs> see how far i've come as a driver and you know obviously tire technology has come significantly uh from there so that's true see that's what very the difference true is. Well, you can always leave the hockey puck tires that are on there and hamstring yourself and see if you're able to, <laughs> see if you're able to, see if you're able With to date codes like five years ago. 
So this NSX, how did you graduate uh, to that? Uh, so the M3 was originally going to be built for street class. We tore it all down. Uh, our good friend Mike at Stanceworks went to put a cage in it for me. And I took the engine out, sent it to the engine builder. And in typical engine builder fashion, they ended up taking something like 14 months to just machine the block. What so, is the problem with engine builders? <laughs> like I know Dude, Mike has been I waiting for his know. motor for like, I don't know, three centuries. I've I've <laughs> waited for cylinder heads. I've taken a flywheel to a machine shop and they'll be like, it'll be a couple days and it's like three weeks. What is the deal? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know, man. I, it just seems like they're excellent at what they do and terrible at business. So they overbook <laughs> themselves. Either that or they know that you can't do it yourself because you don't have a a machine shop in your backyard. So (laughs) they can pretty much do whatever they want. I like that pessimistic. You're like, no, they're like, ah, you can't do any of this. I'm going to get it done for you when I get it done for you. (laughs) And you will wait, my friend. You will wait. Yeah. All right. So the E36 is at the engine builder. Yeah. And then uh, I had actually planned on taking the E36 to Japan. We'd set everything up with a couple of friends and I'd saved a bunch of money for it. And I was like, okay, this is what we're going to do. It was a dream to take my car to... Tsukuba, which is the like holy grail track of time attack in Japan. It's where it started. Um, and I have a few friends out there that do a bit of media in Japan. Like, oh yeah, we'll set everything up for you. So saved up all of that. It turned, it became very obvious it wasn't going to happen with the M3 uh, since the car wasn't even done. And I... That must have been devastating after just all this planning and lead up and build up and meeting, getting all set to go and everything else. It was definitely a bummer. Uh, you know, I, there was a lot of unfinished business that I wanted to do in street class, and I was really looking forward to competing, and it just kind of unfortunately never happened. And I didn't give up on it. We were still working away at it. And then I had the opportunity to buy an NSX for my good friend, Scott. Uh, we were at dinner and joked about selling it. And I told him, you know, if you're serious, I'll buy it. Called him the next day and bought it. And uh, like every car guy i told myself i wasn't going to modify it and it was going to be a nice street car (laughs) (laughs) and uh, had you ever thought about buying an nsx before that or was this pretty knee jerk um so i had always wanted one i didn't really consider it to be too attainable i didn't realize that the prices would come down on them so much and i was actually saving up to buy a 996 turbo since i think those are kind of the ultimate track performance value like what you were getting at the time uh, if you invested a bit of money into it, you would have an insanely fast car that would be very reliable and a good, you know, time attack car in general. You know what a car so, is not that description? What's that? An NSX. I mean, that's like, it doesn't, <laughs> exactly. have, doesn't have the power. You know, it's just, yeah. that's, it's not, it, in the comparison, those two aren't in the, even in the same zip code. Exactly. So, uh, and I knew that and I was like, oh, you know, but it's a kind of an opportunity to own a car that's been a dream car of mine. So I'm just going to go for it and then put all of my eggs back in the M3 basket and just get it done. So kind of like shift things around. Uh, Bought the NSX and took it to my first track day. So I probably am at the track, uh, especially at that time, I was at the track probably 50, 60 times a year, like coaching and driving and doing all sorts of stuff. So naturally, I just drove it out to the track to have a nice car to drive out. And was like, why don't I take it out for a lap? Took it out for a handful (laughs) of laps and uh, fell in love with the way that it drove and went down that slippery slope to where it is now. Yeah, man. So had you driven an NSX before this? You know, before you decided yeah. to take the leap and buy it overnight, was it something you'd experienced before? Yes. So I do a lot of driver coaching, and one of the guys I was coaching had a turbo NSX. And I loved the car, loved the way that it drove, uh, loved the way it looked, everything about it. So fortunately, I'd had some seat time in it, and... Uh, once I had a chance to set it up the way I liked it, it was, you know, like nothing I'd ever driven before. Okay. So when I think NSX, I think kind of responsible in terms of supercar, right? You think of NSX as the responsible, attainable <laughs> supercar that you could take your mom for a ride in and everything would be okay. And it's a Honda. And it's a so Honda. It so runs forever. Yep. You no, know, it's just, it doesn't, it doesn't strike me. I, let me say this first. I love the NSX. I love the way it looks, but it's always been given. I've never driven one, you know, from, from my perspective, I've never driven one. But from an outsider's view looking in, I go, well, why would I buy that when I could have and then fill in the blank here? Because of, just because of the power, it just doesn't have a lot of power and everything, everything like that. How did you kind of make the leap over that and get past all of the because the car kind of has a stigma of just being like on an underpowered supercar? Yeah, absolutely. And I would say that's not wrong. 
necessarily, you know, for what the average person wants, uh, it is underpowered. Uh, however, Hondas in general are known for not making very much power, but the way that they make it is often very good. And it often matches the chassis really well for the type of driving that I like to do. I would say, you know, like you can get into a Civic with the Type R swap and it feels so much faster than it is. Same with like an S2000. It, you know, I think uh, the first year, almost like a crazy percentage of them were basically sold back or sold off because it had so little torque that people thought that the car was slow because they wouldn't rev it out to 9,000 kind of thing. But right. once you get it on track, it feels so much more uh, appropriate. And the NSX is a lot like that, where uh, to the average person, it would be underpowered. I didn't think it was underpowered at all. And a lot of the lap times that it set, it punched so high above its class. So I would say I look at it a little bit because of the type of driving I do and how often I do it. I look at cars a little bit differently than most people would. And if you look at the history of the car and how much Honda invested into uh the way that they made it, the materials, the processes, uh, the car itself is pretty amazing from like a nerd standpoint. And I love that about it. So that's, that was enough to, you know, outweigh the the lack of power, which if you look at the car in its current configuration, obviously that was a problem. Since <laughs> not, a problem that. not a problem anymore. Would you yeah. say the E30 M3 is, it has the same stigma as being like a great car, but underpowered? You know, you get in it, you drive it, it's got 190 horsepower, but it's perfectly, I mean, I haven't driven one of those either. Is it kind of the same feeling where you're like, wow, this is, the chassis is built for this. This is, this is right. This is all is right in the world. Whereas everybody else that hasn't driven it just goes, oh, that's not enough power. So absolutely. I hated E30 MDs until I drove them on track. And then I was like, okay, this makes sense. The car is so much fun. Uh, it actually feels, and I know it's probably blasphemous for any BMW person, but it feels like a rear-wheel drive Civic with a Type R swap, <laughs> you know, where <laughs> everything just works really well. Everything's made it, like the transmission, the engine, and the chassis. It's very obvious that they put a lot of thought into everything being properly balanced. And E30 M3s are very much like that, I'd say. So yeah, one so of the God's most chariot feels like a Honda. Like Got it. Now you need to find, yeah, like, exactly. an old E30. That's like how you know it's good. <laughs> <laughs> you need to find an old E30, like just the 323 or something, and put a Civic motor in it, I think. Uh, I would not be opposed to that. The only problem we'd run into is that now everything is K-swap the world, and that probably has too much power for an E30. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. It, it, it probably <laughs> does. So tell us, how, tell us the evolution of your NSX and, and you know, founding RS Future and doing all the stuff on the car and, and, and that journey a little bit. Okay, so uh, took the NSX out, really enjoyed it on track, and I wanted to kind of see what I could do with just the basic bolt-ons and show that you didn't need much to make a car quick on track. Uh, basically did an exhaust, wheels, tires, suspension, and went out and set some really, really awesome times that I was happy with, but it was nowhere near what would be a competitive time attack time. So decided to kind of go the exact opposite direction and K-swap the car, so we took out the v6 and spent a year building this time attack car where we took out the v6 put in the k-series k20 turbocharged it went wide body took about 400 pounds out of the car uh massive tires big arrow and essentially went from what was the first phase of the car to a huge evolution to pretty much most of the way of where it is now uh because at the beginning of the project, I knew I wanted to compete in Time Attack. It's a huge part of what I do and what I love. And after those first few laps of realizing how potent the, the chassis was, went full bore on that car and threw away the whole streetcar mentality that I had with it. So, Amir, not being a Honda guy, I'm curious, why take the Honda V6 and swap it out for the K-Series, which is the four-cylinder? Like what? What so, is the benefit there? Can you not modify? Because you can get a zillion horsepower for like four dollars. Yeah, but can't you modify the V6? <laughs> Isn't that a better motor by any? I don't know by so, a standard. Excellent question, and then one that I get a lot. But so the C series is a great engine. Uh, the big issues they had was uh, the issues were that number one, if you blow it up, they're very hard to get. They're very expensive uh, to get. Let's say six, 700 horsepower reliably out of them. You're spending about $20,000 and then they're huge, heavy and difficult to service. From a Porsche standpoint, so, that seems pretty reasonable. <laughs> I was going to say the that's, that's, that's like Porsche money. Cause I spent $20,000 so, and I have 290 horsepower. So, <laughs> <you know. laughs> so from a Porsche standpoint, it's a bargain. Yep. From a Honda standpoint, it's like you're buying another car. <laughs> so, so very different scales there. But uh, with the K series, 
you know, there you could literally call probably four or five uh, engine builders in the country uh, and have an off the shelf thousand wheel horsepower K series for around ten thousand um, dollars. Which in Time Attack, it's basically drag racing from corner to corner. So horsepower is paramount. They're reliable. You know, there are tons of cars running these in the five, six, seven hundred horsepower range with full seasons on one engine. Uh, they're also much lighter. Uh, motorsport, everything, you know, obviously you want to get a car as light as possible. It's what makes, you know, a lot of older cars feel so special is they're so light that they don't need a ton of power. Uh, very agile. So we knew that we were going to cut a lot of weight by going from the older, larger V6 to a modern, small four-cylinder. And the aftermarket is huge. So pretty much anything you want for it, you can find. Uh, there's five or six different transmission options. Uh, there's all sorts of engine configurations. Like I have a beautiful carbon intake manifold that I literally just went online and bought. And three days later, it was there. So the, the aftermarket was huge. And that was a big part of it. So this is essentially the small black Chevy of the import world. It, it is. And I actually just did an article with uh, Speed Hunters talking about kind of how it is almost the mini LS now in the U.S. where you're seeing them in absolutely everything. Uh, people are swapping them into Ferraris. Like you mentioned, putting <laughs> <laughs> Excellent point. Like our good friend Mike and everything from an E30 to a Ferrari, you know, so they kind of are the modern jdm small block chevy where you're just seeing in everything and it's a great platform are, are people starting to make universal kits for multiple different because you can buy almost everything except my Isuzu trooper you can buy kits to put whatever ls you want in it like you can do it for miatas and arc sevens and 911s they make kits is there is that starting yeah. to happen with the k-series it is so you're seeing like kits for brz frs's there's kits for miatas there's kits for the mr2 spider there's kits for Ooh. all sorts of different mr2s so there's, there's like basically a kit for almost every modern kind of platform i think even there's a kit for e46s and e30s you know so it's that common where before the idea of putting a japanese engine in a bmw would have been absolutely blasphemous now it's so common that you can go buy a kit for it what do you think was the sea change in that where that kind of stuff became acceptable because for a while, I mean, yeah, you you say blasphemy. I mean, it's get kicked off the internet. Someone's gonna, <laughs> yeah. you know, shit in your mailbox. What is? I mean, what what caused the sea change there? Um, so a combination of things. Uh, I would say a big part of it is that E thirty sixes and E forty sixes got so cheap that people that didn't care about blasphemy could do things like that. Right. Uh, and also, you're you're a lot less nervous about cutting up a five thousand dollar car versus you know a fifty sixty thousand dollar M three back when they were new and and the forums existed. Uh, and a lot of people started to see K-swaps in other platforms doing crazy things. Uh, there was probably a year or two where they were getting swapped into everything uh, and people were having huge success, huge numbers. And they were looking at what it cost. You know, they would share that basically for six grand, people were making 500 at the wheels with a swap all done. If you're a little handy, you can, you can buy all off the shelf parts and modify it to work with your car. And you can get a K24 A2 for, let's say, $700. So is this an uh, RSX-type S motor? Is that what this is out of? So the RSX-type S motors are actually, like, that's what I have in my car, but okay. they're starting to get very hard to find and the more expensive of the bunch. The really common K-swap is the K24. So that's what came out of uh, everything from a CRV to a TSX Accords. And there's, you know, like any engine that's been in production for 20 years, uh, there are certain ones that are like the better ones to get, and you can get essentially the best K24 for eight to nine hundred dollars if you're in Los Angeles. So they're super inexpensive. Wow. So back in the day when I was, you know, on the forums making fun of people and stuff like that, the funny thing that we always said about Hondas is obviously VTEC, yo. I mean, is that still a thing yes. where where it's just like this light switch turns on and then VTEC kicks in? Just educate me on on yep. that. Or did you get rid of all that stuff and do standalone? So. VTEC with all of the lag and none of the turbo. Yeah, um, exactly. So uh, VTEC is still in all of the modern Honda engines. They have IVTEC, which is going to be a variable valve timing, like what you would see in an E46 M3 or any modern engine. And then they still have VTEC, which is essentially two different cam profiles on a camshaft. On my engine, we run what you would call VTEC killer. So we just run it on the <laughs> big lobe all the time for oil pressure. And it's basically always in the high power mode. But uh, all of the engines still have it. It's kind of what makes Hondas so good engine-wise. Like I would, there are probably a lot of people that would argue with me, but uh, 
in my opinion, Honda is one of the best engine manufacturers in the world. Uh, a lot of what they do is truly impressive with how much power and how much reliability they get out of small packages. Well, how, why? That why? Is, how, why? Justify that. What What is the reason so, that you found that makes that a true statement? Like the engineering and the engines are excellent and they're typically vastly over-engineered for what they're doing i mean like you, if you consider the fact that an rsx type s made 200 and like 10 horsepower you can literally take that engine out put an, or just leave it completely stock turbocharge it and make 500 wheel horsepower reliably and there are very few engines where you can do the same basically throw a turbocharger on it and make double the horsepower reliably I'm here. chris, this, uh, just, this is not chris fair. just looked visibly upset i wish you could have seen his face when you said that it is not fair it's not fair it's truly not fair so is this materials or is it thermal or it just, is it just like the japanese are the ones that you make the nice micrometers in the first place so that all their tolerances are really good what like what is it? Is there anything that you can put your finger on it, or is it just the entire package of the way they do things? It's just the way that they engineer the engine in the first place. Like okay. The architecture is good. So you get engines uh, like Subarus, which are just bad. Nothing you do <laughs> will ever make it good. It is just the architecture of that engine is not designed to handle five times the horsepower. At stock powers, it is acceptable. It's good. It gets the job done. But when you're talking about, okay, we need this to make seven, eight, nine hundred horsepower, it's not engineered in a way to do so. Uh, the K-series, basically, the, the crank sits in the middle of the block, which is a fairly modern design where essentially, rather than having rod caps uh, or uh, crankshaft caps, the, the block sits around the crankshaft so it doesn't move very much. And then the materials are good. And then the heads flow ridiculous amounts of air, which is kind of what the K-series is known for. So it's a combination of just good materials and excellent engineering and well-designed. Unless you drive it for many 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 years at the limit and then you have a catastrophic failure eventually well so mine was <laughs> rpm related we tried we asked way too much out of it sure what were you revving it to because honda motors also uh, are notorious for revving and when you rev it to the point where it breaks it i'm curious what you were revving at so our failure was rpm related and we were revving it to about nine thousand ninety two hundred. Okay. And okay. for the two liter, which is what we previously had, not a big deal. For the 2.4 and the kind of what we do with it, that was a little too much. Was it a stroke 2.4 or a bore 2.4? Well, so they came in a uh, two liter and a 2.4 configuration. We were just running the stock 2.4 with the uh, okay. updated internal. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So with so these bore carry- and stroke. Okay. What, what, that's not a, that's still an over square setup though, right? Uh, no. It, so it's a, uh, the, K20 square, and then the stroke on the K24 is massive. So the stroke is, I think, something like 14 millimeters bigger than the... Uh, wow. Than so the that's really impressive yeah. that you can rev it that high. Well, as we found out, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, I was going to ask you, Amir, when you're talking about these K-series and you want to get 500, 600 horsepower out of it, you, you're always talking about adding boost and turbocharging these things. Does anyone make really good power on these motors still naturally aspirated? Is that is that still a thing? Because I'm thinking about oh, yeah. on the track, if if you're not drag racing like you're saying from corner to corner, usually you want power under the curb. You don't want just on-off switch power. So I'm curious, are people still using these naturally aspirated or is that maybe the one downside to this platform? I would say probably 95% of the swaps that are for road racing are all naturally aspirated and you can get a a pretty crazy amount of horsepower considering the displacement uh like it's common to get 300 at the wheels or over 300 at the wheels out of a two four come on man (laughs) i've got a three two and i've only got like a little less than 300 horsepower (laughs) (laughs) it's not fair yeah so and and then the drag guys i think the guys like the really crazy horsepower guys are making 600 at the wheels naturally aspirated from whatever. Wow. Okay. So I want to talk about your interaction with Mike a little bit. Cause that, that even that power seems grossly underrated compared to what Mike Burroughs is trying to do in his Ferrari. And I just want to re- I was texting with him today, you know, just telling him you were coming on and stuff. And he says, uh, I asked him how much influence you had on his 308 as a time attack machine. And he said, oh, the 308 and its direction are massively inspired by Amir. He's been one of the main driving forces that got me out on track to begin with, and he introduced me to a ton of people I can now call friends. 
His NSX is one of my favorite cars, period, and serves as a huge inspiration to build the coolest car I can muster. He's brought a ton of knowledge and help to my builds and my driving talents. Every time I talk to him after a session, I go faster every time. So tell me about, <laughs> I want to hear about the first time Mike came and said, hey, I bought this Ferrari. What engine do you think I should put in it? And what his reaction was when you prob, I'm just imagining that this is what happened, that, <laughs> that you said, well, do a K-series, obviously. Oh, first off, that's like one of the nicest things anyone's ever said. So thank you so much, Mike. That's very kind of him. Uh, and I'm glad I could have a bit of influence on, you know, what he's doing. He does a lot of really, really cool, cool stuff in general. And this build is pretty insane. Um, I remember actually we were at global time attack finals. I think it was last year. And he was like, please don't tell anyone. I have this car that I might buy. And he showed me a photo of it. And at which point I was super stoked for him. Like who wouldn't want to see someone get one of the best looking cars ever. Yeah. And then when he told me what he wanted to do with it, it's a, it's a yellow Ferrari 308. If you've been living under a rock. (laughs) Oh yeah. My bad. Uh, It's just such a well-known car. I just assume everyone knows about it, but you're right. Uh, and when he told me he wanted to case swap and do all this crazy stuff, I was naturally 100% on board and pretty floored. I did not expect that. Um, you know, I I personally think that the 308 is one of the best looking cars and one of the worst performing cars ever in stock It seems form. like it is. So, I, it, the, the chassis, that thing, and the motor are just, oh my gosh. It's almost, it yeah. seems like you could build it at a not Home Depot. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I, I always joke like, everyone loves the f40 like it's the halo car for so many people it's yeah. the best car ever but they're built like trash like if you ever actually see an f40 underneath you're like it looks like a drunk person welded a bunch of square tube together that's what it and, was uh, that's really, that is 100 accurate <laughs> it's a bunch Lots of, of drinking wine. Corona. <laughs> and uh the 308 is much the same but it's actually like not poorly put together like the way that they designed it is pretty good so i think as long as you take the engine out and you put something potent in there or you know build the engine to have the power it should have it's a really really good platform so i'm it's really like a beautiful girl with a nice with, with a uh, with a bad personality right i mean it's just they look great <laughs> on the outside but they just don't really get it going otherwise they drive you crazy because they're just underneath that beautiful shell of the three-way and the f40 just to explain to people what they are it is square tubing <laughs> literally yeah, it, iron steel square tubing that's cut and put together it's like they are still living in like 1972 Le Mans where everything was like this bird cage type of situation except it's not even beautiful with the chassis off it's just square you know stock. what no it's it's that's giving it too much credit it's like when you and your dad build a <laughs> go-kart in your garage and you just build it out of square tubing that's literally what Ferrari did they yes. built a big go-kart yeah, and then the, put a beautiful body on it. Yes, yeah, but they are absolutely beautiful. Yeah, beautiful cars. They feel very special, but the way that they're put together, especially back then, up until about the 355, they were very unimpressive in the way that they were constructed. I would yeah, say. and they got away with it because uh, their name. And obviously the F40 is so cool. I mean, it's super cool. They The engines also are very special in, in most of these cars. I say most because we all know the 308 <laughs> dynoed at like 100 and, uh, like 10 horsepower or whatever it dynoed at. So um, tell us, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting off track here. Tell us about the conversation no, you're, you're, you're with you're Mike good. in this car. Uh, so basically he was, he said, I have a vision for this car. I kind of know exactly what I want to do. You know, any help that you can provide, I'd appreciate. And naturally, I was on board. He's been a, a huge supporter of mine. He's helped me tremendously uh, throughout the years. So anything I could do to finally reciprocate and help him out, I was happy to do. And uh, he had some huge dreams for it, which I loved. He basically showed me a photo of this 308 and then was like, I want it to have a thousand horsepower. I want it to be super fast on a racetrack. I want it to be crazy light. And it sounded like all the things that I love about cars yeah. and making cars ridiculous. Yeah. So I was like, this is this is going to be the coolest Ferrari ever. And by far the coolest 308 by a mile, nothing will ever come close. Right. So uh, he said he was going to do it. And, you know, not just w- with Mike, I would never doubt it. But I'm sure you guys have a lot of those friends where you hear about these grand plans. And you're like, oh, OK, we'll see if it happens. Uh, and with Mike, I knew it was going to happen. I just didn't realize how quickly he was going to do it because he basically got the car and asked me to stop by, check the car out, asked me what I would do, who some of the best vendors were, who some of the best engine builders, what transmission to do. And within the span of like three weeks of owning the car, I think he purchased like a sequential transmission, <laughs> an engine that was capable of a thousand horsepower and all this stuff. And 
started tearing the car apart. So in typical Mike fashion. Yeah, it's it'll be interesting. Do, how do you think the car is going to actually perform? I think it's going to perform really well. I think it's going to take some dialing in. Yeah. Uh, for sure, because the the platform itself looks to have all of the right bones to make it capable. But uh, naturally, when you throw, I think on, on track, he's going to shake it down probably with like five, 600 horsepower. Uh, when you take a car that made, what, like a third of that at the wheels and then take it out onto a racetrack with essentially a new suspension, new engine, new transmission, crazy aerodynamics. Minus it's like 500 probably, pounds. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be an absolute monster and probably not going to drive all that well. But <laughs> knowing Mike, he is going to do everything it takes to dial it in and get everything perfect. And probably within about six months, I think it's going to be a seriously fast car. I think it will be competitive in time attack, which is a very, very hard thing to do at the moment. The, the budgets that people are spending are pretty insane. I mean, it's common to see quarter million dollars in the program, you know, for a lot of these cars. Wow. Is there any way that someone like me could be competitive? Are there any classes that are just really chill? So I think I don't have $250,000 or I can't <laughs> afford sequential gearboxes or anything like that. So enthusiast class is designed for that, where you can go and take a car that you love, put a little bit of money into it and most likely be competitive. Like uh, my E36 realistically probably could have been rebuilt with, let's say, uh, if you wanted to save money here and there, you could have bought a chassis for five, six grand and then put about 25 grand into it all in like completely, completely done and probably even less than that. And you could go potentially win. So for less than the price of a new Accord, you can go and potentially win in time attack. It, still, it still sounds expensive for a purpose built thing, but it's a lot more reasonable than, than $250,000. That's for sure. So exactly. And I hear a lot of complaints in time attack about if you don't have money, you can't compete. And it is an unfortunate truth. Like you're, the cars are too advanced now. I mean, like even, so my NSX is in street class and we just bought a Bosch Motorsport ABS for it. So the same ABS that's in a GT3 car is now in my street class car. And that's wow. like a $7,000 or $7,500, $8,500 ABS system just for the ABS. Plus putting so it in the and cars are Exactly. So the cars are now at a level where if you want to be at the top level, you're going to spend a lot of money unfortunately but was it, mike is doing everything he needs to and luckily he does all the work himself so i think his car has the capability to be competitive so when i was over there and i met you you were there and you guys were talking about arrow right yes so what is it that you do with arrow over at rs future that um that you'll be doing on mike's car that you did on your car how do you develop that stuff what's the procedure like so um I make a lot of aerodynamic components with RS Future. Uh, it's a small business that I have. It's a shop and we do that. So explain, I guess I should explain that first. And the process is basically we'll take a, what would be uh, a well-known concept of how to extract good aerodynamic performance out of a car using you know fundamentals. Uh, there's like different levels of it. So with a car like mine, I wanted to basically produce a significant amount of downforce without doing anything too crazy. Like we use CFD testing uh, for a lot of the development, but see when you have a car, not everyone can afford to get their car 3D scanned and run in CFD and all sorts of super fancy uh, development work done. So we, we take a lot of what you would call best practices, uh, apply that to some aerodynamic components. Everything's made out of carbon fiber to keep it light and strong and uh, kind of apply it to different packages. And then we'll play with, some of the add-on components like splitter diffusers, end plates, wing angle to balance it out. So when I when I think about aerodynamics, we talked a, a while back to Paul House, and he was one of the designers that worked on work for McLaren and did some P work, P1 work and stuff like that. And you talk about the arrow on some of those cars, and they're just out of control, right? Some of those cars are just insane. But when you look at like a regular production car, most of them have negative arrow, right? They have, they all have lift. They don't really have any downforce or at best they're neutral. So you have to get into Correct. something that's like a, like a GT3 or a turbo or something like that, like that, that has real arrow. How much difference does that really make uh, on a, on a street car and on a, tr on a track car? Like if I, if I'm out on the driving around on the road, I'm going through twisty roads in the, in the country, am I going to notice, or is it something that you really only notice on track? So uh, great question. And the answer to that would be, you would notice it on the freeway. 
Like that's how big of a difference it makes. Like you wouldn't even need a corner or a, a turn in the bend or in the road to actually feel the difference. If I were to put an aero package and this is just like a basic one, nothing too crazy on a car until so you just drive it straight on the freeway and change lanes, you would feel the difference. Like the stability of the car, uh, the how planted it feels, uh, the way that it handles uh, like imperfections in the road changes. So it, it's pretty crazy how big of a difference it makes. If you were to take it on your typical mountain road where you're doing 60, 70 miles per hour, you know, like top speed, you would 100% feel a difference. And then on a racetrack, like uh, at Button Willow, which is our North American kind of like time attack heaven, uh, from no arrow to arrow, we've seen differences of two to five seconds. Wow. So it's a massive difference. So is that quantifiable as a percentage? Is in just in general, like uh, it's it's this much extra downforce generally? Is it like 15, 20%? Yeah, so you'll see, like, uh, I mean, like you're saying, some cars, it might be 300% of an increase because you made lift before or right. it had, like, a tiny amount of downforce. So you can typically get, like, a percentage-wise of lap time, and you might say, like, oh, the car will be 2% faster, which right. 2% around a racetrack is massive. Like, you don't just find 2%. In Formula 1, for example, they fight for a tenth of a percent, you know, kind of thing. So uh, to find 2 3 4% out of an item or a package or any sort of upgrade is pretty huge. And like, that's, I guess you could say the quantifiable difference there. And then downforce wise, uh, it varies so much car to car. So we'll use things like uh, suspension uh, shock pots or suspension height uh, gauges that mount to the shocks themselves. And we can measure how much downforce the car produces based off of that. Oh, so you're measuring the compression that the suspension has at whatever speed. Correct. So you can do something as simple as like, let's say if you're a, uh, do it yourself or in your home and you want to kind of figure out if these things you're adding to your car is making a difference. You can buy like a $50 ride height gauge from like an X5 used, uh, hook it up to a voltmeter and put a hundred pounds of stuff in the front of your car, see how much the car lowers. And then, you know, kind of that crudely figure out how much downforce you're making. I'm going to guess that my 911 has zero downforce as is with no ducktail and an S front bumper at about. Oh, I, oh there's plenty of lift. Oh, at a hundred. <laughs> I've never had my car over, over 150 at 148, 150 miles an hour. The, the scale for me, like you're measuring things in percentages. The scale for me is how stupid am I being? Am I being <laughs> this much stupid or is my life flashing before my eyes? Am I thinking about, I've got a family, I've got a wife. What am I doing? Cause you get, in these, in the 911, it just gets so um, nervous. I, I would say nervous at, at higher speeds. Even on a smooth road, you hit a little undulation, anything. Everything seems to affect what you're doing, and you really have to kind of monitor and and focus and 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 slow down. Honestly, is what you end up <laughs> trying to do. Yeah, especially. I mean, you figure the tires on your car are very small. You have nothing to help with the lift, and 911s were notorious for making a lot of lift. So I can imagine that at 150 miles per hour, your car is pretty scary. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's absolutely sketchy. How much is? How much can you decrease lift by just lowering the car to begin with? Because I'm always telling everybody lower is better, and I'm just looking for another reason to tell them better. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, lower is better, and the less air you get under the car, you know, uh, that's a good. That's why the actually the 911 was one of the first cars where production cars where people really played with aerodynamics. And that's why they came up with the ducktail and they had that front spoiler that uh, yep. was introduced on them. And they actually had a really cool study that you can find where they released all the numbers, but it was pretty significant. They were taking away, like essentially getting rid of all of the lift on the car with a couple of small add-ons and lowering the car almost always makes it better. Yeah. And it'll look a lot cooler. Which Absolutely. Is important. Absolutely. So I had a, I had an RS front, uh, bumper on my car and I had a ducktail on my car when I got it and I eventually took all and I did some couple like high-speed runs on the way home and I remember the car felt pretty good like I wasn't really thinking about it I was just like oh this is just how the car is and once I got it repainted and I took all that stuff off I remember going and doing it again and being like holy shit this is <laughs> sketchy I didn't even have an s front bumper I just had a regular bumper with no right. little kick just out pushing all the air under it it can it was horrifying it was absolutely <laughs> horrifying it was <laughs> do not do not attempt, I guess, is, is what I can say. Yeah, and then you get that point where at a certain speed you can kind of turn the steering wheel like 10 degrees right and left and the car just keeps going straight because it has so much lift in the front, the tires are doing nothing. Yeah, they're doing, <laughs> which is great in a rear engine car. <laughs> they're, 
not doing. <laughs> there's already not much weight yeah, there's up there. Nothing up there. So one of the things Mike said is that uh, he he's learned how to be much faster because of you. And we've got about maybe five, 10 minutes left. I just want to talk about some of the advice. You say you do instruction and stuff like that. What are some of the improvements that people can make? Or I guess just let me rephrase it this way. What are some of the mistakes that every single person makes that you have to correct them most on when they're out driving and doing time attack with you? Okay, so uh, the biggest thing that I've found essentially across the board, and this uh, goes from the most entry level of driver to sometimes even very, very advanced drivers is vision. So where your eyes are, are absolutely crucial to what the car is doing and where you're going and making almost like a map in your mind of where you're going to position the car in the braking zone uh, at the apex and at the exit is huge to stability, the speeds you can carry through it and also linking corners together. So vision and keeping your eyes up is something that I work on with just about everyone. Uh, I'm working with a gentleman right now who is racing in Ferrari Challenge, and he essentially went from zero experience to now he would be very competitive, probably one of the faster guys in this class over the span of like a year. And one thing that we always work on is vision. From the first day to even today, it's like, okay, where are your eyes? You know, look at the look at the braking zone, look at the apex, look at the exit. Uh, even on a day-to-day basis, you can focus on that. When you're driving on the freeway, are you looking at the car that's right in front of you or are you looking basically as far down the road as you can? And that's something that you can practice every day. You don't need to be at a racetrack to practice. Just how much are you actually seeing of what's around you? I'd say that's a big one. And then... Yeah, I always go... I did, just before you go on to the uh, second one, when I did the, the Barber Motorsports Park, I did some training with the Porsche Sport Driving School. And the two things cool. that they always pounded into you was... Look where you want to go, not necessarily where you're going, is kind of what I think that kind of ties into what you're saying. And the other thing was the wheel yep. of traction, mm-hmm. where it's just like the, the yeah. steering angle based on power and everything else. So that gets a little more complicated. But those were well, the two things. Well, your tire only has 100% traction. If right. you're using 60 of it to turn, yes. you're not going to be able to put down power. Yes, exactly. And <laughs> my question, I guess, on the first part is with your vision, is it something that you as you as a driver, are you still constantly thinking of the mechanics of where you want to be and when and how you're going to get there? Or is it something that becomes innate as your mind, as you get good? I'm just, as you become a professional driver, do you think like Lewis Hamilton is thinking about, all right, that's my apex. That's where I'm going to be. Here's where I am. That's where I'm going to exit. The next corner's there. Is that something that you're always doing no matter what? Or, or is you, it just muscle or memory? Do you, or do you learn it? Okay. So especially at that level of guys like Lewis Hamilton, uh, top, top, top level, they're not using vision in the way of being like, that's my braking zone. That's my apex. That's this. What they're doing is they're basically when they're in a corner, mentally, they're two, three corners ahead. They are laying out that plan of exactly how they're going to position the car, what region they're going to break in. And the car is, it's something that changes constantly from lap to lap. The car changes. So the vision is almost more for that where, you know, okay, the car feels a little bit different here. So I think I'm going to switch my braking zone to about here. I'm going to position it so that that way my apex is a little bit later. And you're almost making that map visually in your mind versus uh, like at that level, it's, it's almost not what you're seeing. That's all just reaction. Like, you know, it's all innate. It's muscle memory. It's more so the vision in your mind of how, what you're going to do to get the most out of the car, because the car is always changing little bits, or even at that level, you're still learning a little bit corner by corner, bit by bit of things you can change to make it better. Maybe be easier on the tires, maybe have a better exit because you're starting to lose the rear tires and the vision Initially, it's, it, it is with the eyes. And then from there, it goes into like basically your mind's eye and what you are picturing in your mind. And that's big on blind corners, for example. That's how you can go through 10 tenths, knowing that in your mind, you see what's there, even though you can't visually see it. Yeah, that, that terrifies me. All right, number two. <laughs> what's the other thing you were going to say? Uh, brakes. So the brake pedal is probably the most important thing on a car and for going fast. And, no, uh, it's the gas pedal. <laughs> <Don't lie to laughs> <me>. <laughs> uh, and the brake pedal is important because, you know, the less you use it, the faster you go because you're using more of that gas pedal and uh, you can use it to control the car. So uh, brake application is huge. One, the, the biggest thing you see with beginners, and I guess this is going to be more of a beginner aspect of it, is most people don't understand the idea of threshold braking and how hard you can brake. Uh, you'll get to a track, and I'll, do, I'll work with people for two, three weekends, and it's something that's even difficult for them to really, really nail down. 
And at a lot of racing schools, uh, I forget the name of the one in uh, England, but it's a famous racing school. The whole first day you basically spend accelerating in a straight line, getting your gear shifts perfectly, and then braking in a straight line as hard as you can, threshold braking to get that just innate and get that muscle memory. Because the braking, you know, if you break it 50% for twice the distance uh, versus 100% at the correct distance, you're obviously going to be going much faster, threshold braking as hard as you can. And I, I think people aren't used to the idea of slamming on the brakes as hard as you can. They only do it in an emergency. They otherwise they exactly. have even then I found it's dangerous because people don't like breaking that hard. Like even if you're yeah. going to rear end someone, I've I've read reports that people don't apply full breaking because it's uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is. So then you get to a point where you've never done this before and we're on a racetrack and I'm in the right seat and I'm telling you to break as hard as you can and you think you're breaking as hard as you can but you're really using 50 to 70 percent braking force and then we're entering a corner that you've oversped into and i know that the car can stop because i know what it's capable of and you're only applying 50 70 percent throttle or i'm sorry 50 to 70 percent brake and i'm sitting there freaking out because i'm like oh my god we are not going to make this breaking <laughs> zone when there's just so much left in the system is this wow. because of uh power assist brakes do you think manual brakes because they demand so much more pressure and the modulation is really linear that it would be easier for people with manual brakes to figure out where the braking threshold is? Yeah, probably because you're just used to that, how much pressure you really have to apply. And in a manual brake car, like I had a 911 that had manual brakes, you knew when you needed a stop, you put a lot of pressure into the pedal. A lot. I mean, you're pushing yourself back into the seat. You are really, exactly. really, it's, it's almost hard to threshold brake in a manual, uh, no assist brake pedal and roll your foot over while it's on the brake and still be pushing hard enough to be threshold right, braking. you're literally standing yeah. on the pedal. No joke, exactly. you are. <laughs> right, that's why I said literally. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so it, it is definitely something that I I probably, I know if I have shitty tires, so I can outbreak my tires. Per, I, I drive around with all seasons. Well, with with fun driving, grip is obviously overrated. That's basically the opposite of time attack. <laughs> right. We want grip, but for us, we don't like grip. I don't like grip. No, I think no, no grip is more fun. I, it's, it's, yeah. you know, <laughs> it's, it's a little scary because, you know, with braking, I don't, my car is, is pretty fast and the brakes aren't great because my tires aren't great to begin with. And my brake pedal feels like a wet sponge, uh, in, in general. So it's, it's a little sketchy in that way, just because I know that I can outdrive the brakes very, very easily. Plus I have all season tires. So you really have to kind of listen, you know, with, with a harder tire compound, they, they start to talk more than like a, like a soft yeah. tire is like. When it's talking, you're dead. You know, you're, you're done. Yeah. You know, so an all season tire will start to squeal a little bit, like just as you start to squeeze its neck and like, ah, starts to starts to go. So I, I like no, I like no traction a little bit better. I think it's a, it, it is a lot more fun getting the car sideways and being able to kind of ring it out is a lot more enjoyable. And uh, the nice thing about a tire like that is that it'll talk to you, like you're saying, it'll talk to you before it lets go, versus a race tire where it just lets you know when it's already gone. Right. So hey, you messed it, up. No, no good. Yeah. This is expensive. <laughs> Time for a yard sale. All right, man. I, I I gotta let you go. I wish you the best of luck in Global Time Attack. We'll be paying attention. Make sure you let us know how it goes. We'll be watching. And uh, where can people find out more about uh, RS Future? Uh, so you can find us on Instagram at uh, it's just at RS Future, and I am on Instagram at at rsfuture underscore Amir. So thank you guys so much. And thank you for having me. This was a, an absolute blast. It was nice to kind of uh, have some fun and a few laughs in the middle of this very crazy time that I'm in right now, uh, getting all the cars ready for SEMA and GTA and stuff. So I absolutely love this. So thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, best of luck to you. Thanks, guys. Take, Take care. care. Right. Well, He's faster than me for sure. I think that's, that's pretty, that goes stuff. without saying. I, I still get like, I've only had my car on track a couple times. Right. And it is amazing when there's far less consequences for things to run into, like trees and people. Oh, yeah, yeah. How much faster you can go just because there's less fear. But my car is far more capable than you think. Than my skill level Ooh, or my yeah. fear level is capable Ooh, of doing. Oh, yeah, big time. Um, I, uh, I had someone that also drove Time Attack drive my car. Okay. And I rode with. Yeah. And it was, I'm like, holy shit, this is what this thing is capable of? This is incredible. <laughs> I, so then you go back and you try to replicate it and you just you just can't do it. And I think the, the bummer is um, with a car like mine, my 911, that is so expensive. And I yeah. hate... 
And I hate that it's so expensive because I would love to take it out to the track and I would love to beat on it. See, that's but why just, we need to buy like a couple Miatas or something. Yeah, maybe it we'll have to get something. Something to thrash maybe on. Maybe we need an Overcrest Time Attack car. Oh, but we'd have to call it like like Super Cheap Attack. <laughs> <laughs> there you go super cheap t- cheap attack overcrest car here we come yes it sounds it sounds like it sounds like a lot of fun maybe we can start up a thing i know lemons does their thing but that's all wheel to wheel maybe we can start a you can only spend five thousand dollars on this car as a time attack car thing because you'd have all you'd have is you'd have hondas dragged out of junkyards with giant oh, turbos time. on them from yeah. ebay so yeah. like it's not even a ball bearing turbo <laughs> it's just like some <laughs> shitty turbo it lasts like one lap which is all you need it's all you need anyway i guess yeah all no, right. i what, like that plan a lot what else have you got for us yeah let's take a moment to talk about our sponsor oberk car care Why'd you say zero? Oberk. Oh, I was giving you what, some what, of that. What is Oberk. that for? It's O for Oberk. Why are you signaling me O? I don't know. I don't know. Oh. 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 Oberk. Oh. What do you got about Oberk? Tell us. Tell us about it. Oberk is your source for professional detailing components and supplies that's research tested and developed by professional detailers themselves. Try the wheel cleaner. I haven't gotten any. It's pretty good. Did, gonna, was there was there two in there? Was there one four. for me? There's okay. four. So yeah, two so obviously for that's for me. Did yeah, you come bring on over. It? No, I did not. Come Why? on up. Come on up. We can wash You're the wheels. You're holding up. my wheel cleaner ransom. Yes, come visit me. Come hang oh my out. Goodness. Well, you haven't seen the parts trooper. You haven't seen <laughs> I mean nothing. You haven't seen a rusty pile in my front yard. Well, wait till wait, you know if I, <laughs> a little off track here. But if you uh, if you sign up for Patreon, you'll get to hear about all the different things that I'm doing to the trooper. But one uh-huh. thing I'm doing uh, this weekend is I'm cutting it in half. Oh god. So that'll be that'll be a lot of fun. So you should come by next week and see this like trooper that's cut in half. Anyway, tell me more about Oberg. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, well, you can get your wheel cleaner without having to go all the way up to BFG. You don't even know where I live. I was trying to think of a funny way to not swear and say it's bumfuck nowhere. But (laughs) uh, damn it, I just said the wrong word. (laughs) Oh man, you're out of control. Out of control over here. So Obert Car Care, they're great products. It's a simple foolproof two-step process for their buffing compound. And of course their wheel cleaner, they have the spray ceramic detailer. They have all sorts of awesome stuff. And right now, there's offering a 20% off your next order when you use the code OVERCREST. That code is good not only on OBERCARCARE.com, but also on DetailedImage.com and CarSuppliesWarehouse.com. Go check them out. And sign up for our Patreon. It is on the, or as we like to call it, the Overcrest Drivers Club. Support the show. We would really, really appreciate it. Subscribe to this podcast. How are we cutting the car in half? You're not. I am. There's no we. I'm doing it. Great. Yes, with a sawzall. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> yeah. Can that make it through frame rails? What frame rails? Have you yeah, seen how okay. rusty this thing is? <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were just going to like wrap a chain around it and just drive it away. We have, that might work. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It, when we started strapping it down to the trailer, it started to like pull apart. <laughs> I, it, 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 is that, it is that bad. More on that on the driver's What if you just try exclusive. to jump it over your, well, it doesn't run. No. But you could just try to jump it over like an embankment and just crack it in half. Like an egg. Yeah. yeah, yeah exactly. Drive, pay, uh, geez, overcrestproductions.com slash drivers club to hear more about that kind of stuff. If you want to hear about Jake and I's escapades, what we're doing with the cars, all that kind of stuff, head over there. We would really appreciate it. Subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a five-star review so you can get that review that's on iTunes right now that says that I'm... I am a pervert. You can get that. You can get you can get that and review insecure. off there. You're and also insecure. insecure. Yes. yes. Well, it, it, people think you're insecure when you're right all the time. I don't really understand how, understand how that works. All right, guys, that's it for today. We will see you next week. Take care.